We're in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and we've reviewed five of the seven letters that the Lord Jesus Christ gave John for the churches. And tonight we're going to take a, a, what I'll call a tale of two cities, two cities side by side. And if you've been following the prophetic overlay of these, you know, as we've emphasized, all seven letters have four levels at least of meaning. A local or immediate application, of course, an admonitory application to all churches through all time, indeed. Also a personal application to each one of us. If you understand the seven churches, you can map any spiritual condition of any church or any individual in terms of those seven dimensions, if you will. But they also have, of course, a fourth level of meaning. Very speculative, not held by all scholars, of course, not free of controversy. And yet, it's interesting that the seven letters seem to correlate with the history of the church. We've tried to highlight that as we've gone along. These two churches, probably the last four, are contemporaneous, finally. I personally believe the last four of the seven letters are churches that enter the Great Tribulation with the exception of one, an exception we're going to talk about tonight. But it's interesting, the last two letters, Philadelphia and Laodicea, I'm going to suggest you consider the view that they're parallel, at least. Not that Thyatira and Sardis aren't also, but let's focus on Philadelphia and Laodicea as being side by side but an amazing contrast between the two. In each of these seven letters, there's a report card, some good news, some bad news, and an exhortation. In two letters, there is no good news mentioned. One was Sardis, we talked about that last time. The other one will turn out to be Laodicea. They're in bad shape. There are two of the seven letters that have nothing bad said about them. Letter to Smyrna, being one of them, they were going through all this persecution. The Lord asked nothing more than they endure. There's nothing, they had no detriment in the letter. The other one that had nothing ill spoken of it is Philadelphia. And obviously, I could ask for a show of hands. We all obviously are in the church of Philadelphia, of course. I understand that. And yet, let's be sure. Huh? It's interesting that of the two cities that were had nothing bad spoken of are the only two of the seven that are still present today. Kind of interesting observation. But uh, let's jump into the letter. What we'll do, I think, as our pattern, let's first just read the letter, and then I'll give you some background, and then we'll try to get into some exposition on the letter. Let's first of all take Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my, my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which they, they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation or trial, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The letter to Philadelphia. You recognize the term Philadelphia uses one of the three Greek roots for the word love. Philadelphia is the youngest of all these cities, known now as Alashair, 
was built in the area acquired by Pergamus in 189 B.C. King Eumenes II, king of Pergamus, had a younger brother, Attalus II, who was his successor. He's the one that uh, named the city uh, after his, uh, because of his loyalty and affection for his brother. And the Philadelphian coins of that period show the two brothers completely alike in height, features, and dress. Now, the area was very favored for wine production. Dionysus, the god of wine, was the principal pagan deity of the, of the city. It was well situated on the imperial roads to, uh, from Rome to, and Troas to Pergamus, Sardis, and the uh, interior of uh, Phrygia. So it was a virtual gateway to the high central plateau of Asia Minor, and thus became a missionary center for the Greek culture. It spread the Greek language and manners to the eastern parts of Lydia and Phrygia. And this missionary character of the city, in terms of its secular role, seems to be also echoed in the letter that we're uh, going to focus on. It's interesting that the area, it's called Katakakomeni, the long, long Greek word, means the burned land. Highly volcanic region, repeatedly suffered from earthquakes. And it was almost completely destroyed, the disaster of 17 AD, which we've talked about before, which devastated Sardis and ten other cities. The tremors... Aftershocks were felt for years afterwards. Civic and economic disruption lasted for more than 20 years. They had a generous assistance from Tiberius of Rome, caused the citizens to rename the rebuilt city Neo-Caesarea, or the new city of uh, Caesar. And uh, later, in the time of Vespasian, they changed it to Flavia, which was his family name. These name changes were short-lived, though, and, and uh, the old name Philadelphia was returned. Prosperity never was fully regained. The city, interestingly enough, was under the legal jurisdiction of Sardis. So if you're studying these letters prophetically, you might want to make something of that. I, I won't press it. I just think that's an interesting observation I came across. The church uh, suffered at the hands of a large Jewish community in the city. Ignatius, the B- bishop of Antioch, writing to the Philadelphian church a few years after the book of Revelation was written, referred to the Jews who had so long persecuted the Christians there, being converted and turning in a contrition to those whose adversity they had caused. In other words, they became converted, and this trend is reflected in the letter itself, as we'll shortly see. So that's a little background on Philadelphia. Just as a, Let's jump into the letter more carefully, verse 7 again, more carefully. And to the angel... Of the church in Philadelphia, right, these things saith he who is ho- that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And as I mentioned, the first in each, in each of these le- seven letters, the name of the church is relevant to the letter. In this case, the name speaks of love. Jesus alludes to himself as he that is holy and he that is true. Now, he that is holy is no surprise. That obviously is all through the scripture. If you recall in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, when Isaiah is confronted with the, at the throne of God, he actually gets a chance to see the throne of God. He sees these strange seraphim around the throne saying what? Holy, 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 etc. The cherubim or seraphim, and many scholars believe they're really just two names for the same thing, uh, seem to have the mission of protecting his holiness or declaring his holiness. We could go through, from here we could depart to a whole study on holy, the word holy throughout the scripture, Leviticus 11, 21, Isaiah 57, other. You can take a concordance, I encourage you to track some of that down. The main thing is the writer here, Jesus Christ himself, was holy at his birth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Gabriel speaks of him that way to Mary. He was holy at his death. 
in Acts 2.27, and he is presently holy in his present priestly office in Hebrews 7.25, seeing he ever liveth and to make intercession for us. So at his birth, his death, and his present thing, he is specifically denotated in the Scripture that way. No surprise, but by way of background. Holy and true. The word true here is one of two Greek words. Uh, there's one Greek word, alethes, which means truth as opposed to falsehood. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the other word, uh, alethinos, which means truth in the sense of real or genuine. A little different connotation. And uh, that's exactly what we find in John 17, 3, 1 John 5, 20. And uh, also the very prophecy of Zacharias when John the Baptist uh, was uh, announced in, in Luke chapter, again, chapter 1, but verse 75, for those of you who want to track that down. So I don't think any of us with any biblical perception recognize, surprised by this title of him, that he that is holy and he that is true. In chapter 1, John has a vision of Jesus Christ. And at the end of chapter 1, verse 19, Revelation turns out to be the only book of the Bible I'm aware of where there's a divine outline. The book is actually outlined by the Holy Spirit for you into three parts. He says, write the things which thou hast seen, that is, the vision of chapter 1. Write the things which are, that is, chapters 2 and 3, these seven churches. And then the things which shall be metatauta after these things. And that will start from chapter 4, verse 1 on. In uh, chapter 1, there's a whole list of allusions to Jesus Christ by these various labels. Some Old Testament, uh, all these familiar phrases, and some may, maybe not so familiar. In each of the seven letters, Jesus selects one or a couple of those. And we discover that those are also clues to the theme, or the burden, if you will, of the letter. So here, right away, we're alerted that Jesus, for whatever reasons, is picking these particular appellations of himself. That he is holy, that he is true, and he goes on. He that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now this is a strange idiom to many of our ears. But his kingship, of course, rests on the bedrock of his character, and that's the, the previous arguments here. And to understand that, you really need to reread Psalm 2. I think I've asked you in the past to read Psalm 2, the second Psalm. Take a scratch pad and figure out what three people are talking to each other. You won't understand the Psalm until you discover by yourself that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are having a dialogue. And it's a very interesting Psalm. And Psalm 24 has some of the same appellations. Anyway, this key of David... These same words you'll find in Isaiah 22, verses 19 through 24, essentially. In fact, it might be instructive for us to take a look at that. Turn to Isaiah 22. Hold your place in Revelation 3, because we will return. I know some of you are skeptical, but we will get back there. In Isaiah 22. Now, you need to get the picture here. The king at the time is Hezekiah. And his treasurer, Shebna is uh, deposed and superseded by Eliakim. And this is the occasion where the power is being transferred by the king from Shebna, who is being replaced, to Eliakim. Pick it up about verse 19. I'll drive thee from thy station and from thy state shall he be put down. It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So he's, in other words, there's a, one's being cashiered out of the service, so to speak, 
and the other one is being put in his office. But the symbol of that office is the key of David. And he goes on here, the key of his house of David, verse 22, will I lay upon his shoulder. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and issue, all vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups and to all the vessels uh, of flagons, and so on. So we get the clue here from your reading of the Old Testament that the key of David was symbolic of the authority, access to the king. It was a symbol of authority. We understand that Eliakim carried a heavy key on a loop over his shoulder as a symbol of his authority, indicating his power to grant or deny others access to the king. Uh, he alone could uh, set up an audience with the king, King Hezekiah. And uh, he alone, and so the, by implication here, we get the impression this use of idiom here by Jesus Christ is idiomatic, of course, but it speaks in effect of his unique authority to grant or deny access to the presence of God. So it's a kingdom term. You remember in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6, 7, brought unto us a son is born, and to us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and so forth. You all read that on your Christmas cards, if not in Isaiah 9, 6, I'm sure. And of course, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, when Gabriel announces to Mary the coming birth, he points out that he will inherit the throne of his father, David. And that's, of course, a fascinating prophecy we're going to dwell on more thoroughly as we get deeper in the book of Revelation. And as we discover from chapter 4 on, especially chapter 6 on, it's intrinsic Jewishness. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In fact, we're going to find ourselves, when we get to chapter 4, John is brought up and brought into the presence of the throne of God. So that's going to be exciting. And we're going to talk a little more about the different thrones, the throne of David versus the throne of God and so on. Now, it's kind of interesting, this business of a door opening and shutting. I discovered that Janus, the pagan god, we've all heard that name if you've studied uh, ancient uh, worships and things, he was the god of doors and hinges. I, did, I thought that was kind of interesting. He was also called uh, Patatalcius and Chusius, which means opener and closer. That was one of his titles. Now, what makes this interesting is this was later assumed by the Pope. How many of you have heard of cardinals? That's about 10%. Boy, we really do have a Protestant group here, don't we? The word cardinal comes from the word cardo, which means a hinge. I don't know what you're going to do with that piece of information, but I thought it would be kind of interesting. Okay, anyway, back to verse 8. Jesus begins the report card for Philadelphia. And incidentally, if you take the trouble, you'll discover in this concatenation of commendations, there are how many commendations? Make a guess without counting. Seven. Very good. All right. Indeed. I know thy works. He uses that in all the letters virtually. I know thy works. He knows what's going on. Nothing you do, good or bad, escapes his notice. As one grandfather expressed to his grandchild when asked, does he see me all the time? And he said, he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. Which may not have been good news to some kids, but anyway. <laughs> I know that works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Who has the key of David? Jesus Christ. Does he have the power to open a door? You betcha. And if you're considering missionary work, you want to make sure the door is open. We'll come back to that in a moment. I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, 
and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. This concept of open doors you'll find all through the scripture. You can take a concordance and track these down. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.9 and 2 Corinthians 2.12 and Colossians 4.3 says, I have an open door before me that he's going to go through, meaning there was an opening for missionary work, that the door was open to go to X or Y or Z. And he uses that expression to indicate that the Holy Spirit is, uh, is ahead of him and, and moving in that direction. I encourage you to take a good cordage and study. When you come across these things in the book of Revelation or anywhere else in the Bible, take the word and see where else it appears and how it's used. Doors are used as a symbol of deliverance all through the scripture. We have Noah in Genesis 7, verse 16. How many doors were there in the ark? One. Who closed it? God did. Noah didn't. Could Noah have gotten out if he wanted to? I don't think so. As an editorial aside here. And he closed it how long? Seven days before the flood. People forget that. Kind of interesting. And as I usually point out, there were three groups of people facing the flood. Those that perished in the flood, those that were preserved through the flood, only eight of them, and those that were removed prior to the flood, Enoch. And I think you all remember that Enoch was not mid-flood or post-flood. He was pre-flood. But anyway, um, (laughs) and I'm kidding, of course. Also, the parable of the ten virgins. The door was closed. That was the big climactic thing in verse 10 of Matthew 25. But the ultimate door, of course, is the declaration by Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is organized around seven miracles, which gave rise to seven uh, discourses, which also included seven I am statements. Declaring to be the voice of the burning bush, Jesus himself said, I am the light, the bread of life, the living water. You know, I am the door, he said. And uh, elaborated on that indeed in John 10 and elsewhere. So uh, it says, You have kept my word. You know, the exciting thing about Philadelphia, the biggest A plus they get on the report card, is they kept his word. There was a day then, there was a denial of the scriptures. And this church in Philadelphia believed that the Bible was the authoritative, inspired word of God. What a radical idea! They were measured by faith, not works. He goes on to say, and they have not denied my name. Interesting how those things go together, but they're different. And we live in a day also where the deity of Jesus Christ is blatantly denied by both pulpit and seminary alike. Where our experts with the PhDs and H2SO4s behind their name meet to decide what Christ really said and what he didn't. You've got to be kidding. Somebody made the crack and the echoes in my ear still. I says, if they had, maybe if they cast enough votes, he'd resign. Huh? Now, this church in that day, faced with the same kind of thing, proclaimed that the God-man and his substitutionary death for sinners. And um, the, the suggestion by the passage is that Jesus will be in no man's debt and that uh, loyalty has its sure, sure reward. And that indeed, that's what he's saying here. Thou hast said a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. How interesting it is to see Philadelphia contrasted with the other seven in that regard here in these seven letters. And how interesting it is is the primary challenge before the, the, the body of Christ today are these same issues. Keeping his words, the authoritative word of God, and not denying his name in the true sense of his name. And one of the questions, as we start talking about open and closing doors, I have a question you might think about on your way home tonight. Is the door to America opening or closing? I tend to see one of the most exciting things I see in our landscape is the door opening. 
The average person on the street today knows two things. One, that there's something wrong with this country. Two, that it has something to do with immorality. And I regard that as a gigantic opportunity for the body of Christ. For several decades, as I made my executive career, you couldn't get anyone's time a day. They're too busy making a buck, doing deals, trying to get ahead. Didn't have time for church. Maybe golf, but not church. And yet today it's different. There's a a pain in the gut by almost any thinking person that something fundamentally is wrong with the world in general and America in particular. What an opportunity for the gospel. There are some that believe it's a last call of grace before judgment. Indeed. Let's move on to verse 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Well, the scholars have library books full of speculations as to who he's talking about. Now, in the local scene, it's probably pretty obvious that these were the legalizers. You know, it's interesting that as you study the book of Acts, it's quite obvious that most of the troubles, the the riots, were really instigated by the local Jewish community of the movement of Christianity through the book of Acts. One of the points that clearly comes out as you read that is it's not the Romans particularly that were after him. That came later. It was the Jewish community, by whatever motivation, that really violently upset the, the apple cart, if you will. So certainly these these legalizers, those that wanted to put everyone back under the law of Moses rather than the liberty and freedom that's in the grace that's in Christ, those certainly are in view here in the local sense. As some of the songs we sing, I think we begin to realize as in the Christian community, as we see the Jewish melodies and the Jewish thoughts pervade, it reminds us that circumcision is of the heart. And uh, the Jews that were legalistic and not of the Lord, of course, were not true Jews in a spiritual sense. That, that concept is certainly justifiable from the text. But there's another application in today's world that I want to just suggest to you as a possibility. There is a very strange heresy that went around, started actually in about the 2nd, 3rd century. And that's a heresy that goes something like this. That since Israel rejected her Messiah, the promises to Israel were forfeit, and they fall upon the church. And the church today is really Israel. This idea, which is very prevalent even today, is a heresy in the Scripture for several reasons. All through the Old Testament and the New, you find confirmation of the promises that were made to Israel. First of all, if you study those promises carefully, you'll discover they're unconditional. They weren't conditioned upon Israel's response. Some were. Those aren't the ones at issue. The promises to Abraham were unconditional. Two people didn't go between those pieces. The Lord went alone. Abraham was put in a deep sleep for that very purpose, to demonstrate it was an unconditional commitment on the part of the God of the universe. And all through the Old Testament, that's reconfirmed again and again and again. So the point is, is that there are promises made to Israel that she has yet to receive, that she ultimately will receive, and they have nothing to do with the church. This heresy is a heresy for several reasons, because first of all, it denies Israel's rightful place in the plan of God. It's a heresy for that reason. It's also a heresy which led to the Holocaust in Europe. If you want to study this 
in a thorough way, I encourage you to pick up Hal Lindsey's milestone book called The Road to Holocaust, which demonstrates what the real origin of the Holocaust were. It wasn't just the Nazis. It's far bigger than that. And the reason he brought out the book is it's going to happen again. You can watch it get ready to happen. And the church again will have blood on her hands because of this heresy, which is anti-Semitic, among other things. As we get into the book of Revelation, the distinction between the church and Israel will turn out to be essential to your understanding. And one of the things you want to do is do a personal systematic study of the origin, mission, and destiny of Israel and the origin, mystery, and destiny of the church. They're very distinct. They have some similarities, but they're very distinct and very different. Israel was born, in effect, in the exodus of Egypt. It has a mission. God is not through with Israel, yet Paul, in his definitive statement of the Christian doctrine called the Book of Romans, spends three chapters on that issue. Is God through with Israel? God forbid, and he goes on to elaborate. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul deals with it in spades. You need to understand the prophetic destiny of Israel. If you're going to understand end-time prophecy in general, you'll make no head or tail of the book of Revelation unless you discern those distinctions. The church could not begin until after the resurrection, and then specifically Pentecost. It has a very specific mission, but it also has a terminus. There's a period of time in which the church is complete. In Revelation structure, it'll be at the end of chapter 3. We'll get into that more at that time. Now, it's interesting. I personally suspect that those who say they are Jews and are not may also include what is called today the Reconstructionists, people who try to build a theology on the idea that the church is really Israel. You see? That makes them Jews who say they are Jews and are not. What does Jesus call them? The synagogue of Satan. And as you begin to get behind the whole thing and understand it better, you'll see why. And we'll deal with that when we get to Revelation chapter 12, because the Lord doesn't mince words there either. So we'll talk more about that. In Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, it speaks of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And I am increasingly drawn to the view that that condemnation includes those that would espouse a so-called Reconstructionist viewpoint, because it fails to put Israel in its rightful place in the plan of God, among other reasons. Now, it's interesting that these people apparently are compelled to worship in this passage. That sounds strange until you read Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and the rod of iron and all of that. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, right? Before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Yeshua is the Lord, huh? Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, now we get to probably the most interesting and most controversial verse in the book of Revelation. And some would say in the New Testament in some respects. Because Jesus makes a promise to this church that's rather provocative in verse 10. It's the seventh of the seven commendations, if you will. Jesus says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of trial, or temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now the first expression you encounter here is the word of his patience. And that comes up again. Hold your place here and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's explore some of these phrases and let it speak for itself. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, has a similar phrase in the English. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting of Christ. Again, the word of his patience. 
Philadelphia church was faithful in that regard. And as a response to that, they have this unique promise. It says, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation or trial. See, one of the first things you need to recognize is that Jesus at the moment is still awaiting the millennial kingdom. It's going to come. There will be a time when he'll take possession of that which he purchased. We're going to see him begin that process in chapter 5 when he takes the seven-sealed book. And we'll talk about that then. He is awaiting the millennial kingdom. And let's maybe we should, let's review a couple of verses. This is too basic. Turn to Psalm 110. Jesus himself quotes this to confound the Pharisees, but again, that's another episode. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Jesus is sitting at his right hand right now. What's he waiting for? The big climax. Where is the big climax? Detailed in chapter 6 through 19 of the book we're in, the book of Revelation. And it goes on. You can read the rest of the psalm at your leisure. Turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. The local Christian bookstore put me up this to sell more tabs for your Bible. And of course I'm kidding. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So in the New Testament, the same concept is confirmed. It's obviously drawing up Psalm 110 in other places. The writer of the book of Hebrews. So he's awaiting his millennial kingdom. Now, what's interesting, if you study the field of eschatology, or the theology of the last things, it's interesting as you study the Reformation, the recovery, if you will, from the Dark Ages, this whole idea of justification by faith and faith alone and all these great doctrines of the church, you discover that what was overlooked and left unreviewed was eschatology until about the 18th century. And the 18th century, it again became... There was always a minority through the ages, and you can find the writings, but in general, it was rediscovered in the early 1800s and popularized, and this whole concept, this whole enamorment with the second coming of Jesus Christ, the return of the Lord Jesus is a theme that became very prominent in the 18th century, rediscovering writings and ideas that were actually held in the first few centuries, but disappeared with the allegorization theories of Oregon and Augustine and the rest. Notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say he's going to keep them from the tribulation. He says he's going to keep them from the time of the tribulation. The word in the Greek is aura. It occurs uh, uh, 108 times in the scripture. 89 times it means hour, like we would use the term in a denotative sense. 11 times like timer, and 3 times season, and miscellaneous other 5 times. But the word aura in the Greek means a time or season, a period of time. It isn't necessarily a 60-minute kind of an hour. It's a period of time, typically fixed by either natural law or some other cycle. And it's used in many, many different ways. I won't take you through the whole list. But the point is, what Jesus is promising them is they will be kept from the time of the tribulation. That's a very key point. Because you could argue, if he says, I'm going to keep you from the tribulation, well, he's going to preserve it through it. You see, analogous, if you will, to the eight people on Noah's Ark were not delivered from the time of the flood. They were delivered from the flood. But they had to endure the circumstance, if you will. The one that was removed prior to the flood was, by analogy, 
uh, is the analogy here, I believe. Now, this word um, paresmos, which is the translated trial or temptation, adversity, affliction, or tribulation, is the period there. Some of your Bibles say trial, some temptation, whatever. It's a word that could just as easily be adversity, affliction, trouble, or tribulation. It's from the time of trouble. What kind of trouble is it talking about? Some local persecution? No. From the time of trouble that shall come upon all the world, all of mankind, the entire world. This specifically, then, is an allusion to the Great Tribulation. We're not talking about a particular church being persecuted. We're not talking about a certain little era. We're talking about something much larger. By the way, the term tribulation, if you're going to study that, in Judges 10.14, you'll discover it's linked to the idea of worshiping other gods. And, of course, that's what chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation is going to detail for us as we get into that. Now, I want you to notice that the church here is in distinction to chapter 7, where we're going to see encounter 144,000 Jewish people from 12 different tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, that will be preserved through the tribulation. Different issue. See the difference? That's a very critical difference. And you're going to find that in chapter 7, verse 4, uh, that the 12,000 from each of 12 tribes are going to be sealed so that they'll be miraculously preserved through this time of trouble that's coming. Now, what's involved here is another key concept, and that's the concept of God's wrath. We'll get into this more later, but I think it's important to have this in view already. Turn to Revelation chapter 6 to make a very key point. And it's amazing how many people publish books in this topic without maintaining consistency in their own definitions. God doesn't do that. But the last verse of chapter 6, and I won't get into it right now, we'll obviously get into this later, but the last verse of chapter 6 is, For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? What's going on in chapter 6? God's wrath. Okay? Key point. Now I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 and 2 Thessalonians are Paul's eschatological epistles, his prophecy epistles, very key passages. We want to really study 1 and 2 Thessalonians as background in this area. But let's look at the last verse of chapter 1 to get another perception that Paul is sharing with him. Paul says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who did what? who delivered us from the wrath to come. You're going to discover, I'm just going to pick a couple of examples, that one of the unique promises to the church, not people in general, not believers in general, but to the church, is a a deliverance from God's wrath. That's a very key concept. It happens again and again. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In chapter 5, the first dozen verses, Paul talks about two groups of people, those that are children of the day, children of the night. And he says in verse 2, For yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And by the time you're through reading this passage, you'll realize he's implying, you guys are children of the day, not the night. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night to the children of night, not day. Let's see what else he says. For as when they shall say, Peace and safety, then cometh sudden destruction upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. See the contrast he's building. Many people miss that because in verse 2 it's implied, not finished. But moving on, when you get down to verse 9, key verse. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're going to be strict in your definitions, you end up with a problem. 
because God's wrath is going to be poured upon the earth. And yet the church has been promised that it would be delivered from the wrath. In fact, the Philadelphian epistle specifically, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. So we get this hint of the rapture. Now it's no longer a hint. 1 Thessalonians 4, the last few verses describe it. 1 Corinthians 15 describes this strange, I'll, I'll say bizarre event in which the church is going to be caught up out of the world before the rest of these events will transpire. Strange concept. And yet it's very, very clear, both from the express teaching, the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 and the end of 1 Corinthians 15, these are the famous rapture passages. You'll even find it strange enough in the Old Testament. But that's a more complicated thing than to get into right now. Now this wrath is going to be poured out upon whom? A little local persecution in the state of Israel? No, that's the focus, but that's not where it's confined. It's to all mankind. And the, the Greek makes that very, very clear. It's, it's geographically comprehensive in the Greek language there. Upon all mankind, upon the whole world. You can't escape the technicalities of the Greek grammar. Now, we're going to talk more about these topics as we get into chapter 4, but I want to at least get that in front of us. If you'd like some background, we have a briefing package called From Here to Eternity, which deals with both the resurrection and the rapture, I think with relatively comprehensive notes for those of you who'd like to get into it. We'll also talk more about this, as I say, in chapter 4, and we'll also, those of you who'd like to, Gerald Stanton has a book, Kept from the Hour. He uses the very phrases from this passage we're talking about in, in Revelation 3. Okay, so... Philadelphia is the only church of the seven that has this peculiar promise that they will be delivered from the hour of trial, hour of tribulation. Thyatira had the specific promise that they would go into the tribulation if they didn't repent, right? So we get, we're get beginning to get the feeling that some are, some are going to make it and some aren't. That's, I guess, really the whole point. Let's get down to verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. When he says, Behold, I come quickly, just as he promised. You remember in John 14, If I go in to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, he promised his disciples. He's going to return, he's going to gather his own to himself. He says, I come quickly. That's misleading in the English. The term in the Greek means suddenly. It's a little different concept than we would use with the term quickly in the English. Come suddenly. Now, by the way, if his return for his own was to occur after the 70th week of Daniel, then there'd have to be a seven-year precedent period. And so one of the problems you run into is if he's going to come suddenly for his own, that involves a doctrine called eminence. And you can make a whole list of passages that clearly indicate that Jesus instructed us to expect him at any moment. If there are seven years of details that have to precede a second coming, which it, well, it does indeed precede a second coming, it implies that his gathering of us is separated. In other words, his, his, if his gathering of us was tied up with the second coming, there would be seven years of precedent events. We'll see that later as we get to the book of Revelation. That's, again, one of the reasons we discover he's coming back twice, once for his church, once for Israel, in effect. That will all become clear as we get into this book, in the book of Revelation. I love this, what he says about their crown. Hold fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. They already have it. 
You know, we tend to think that this crown is something we get later, don't we? And yet, it's interesting, he speaks of it as something they already have. Don't let someone steal it from you. Hold fast, let no man rob you. Now, can you be robbed of your crown? Not your salvation, we're talking about something different here. Colossians 2.18 says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, attributing to those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. 1 Corinthians 9.24 it conveys a similar idea. Esau lost his place to Jacob. Reuben lost his place to Judah. For his action at Mirabah, Moses was replaced by Joshua. Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 3. Saul lost his place to David. Shebna lost his place to Eliakim. We just saw that. Joab and Biathar lost their places to Benaniah and Zadok. And for his lack of faith, Elijah was replaced by Elijah. Elisha, excuse me. And at Peter's denial, it was John, his younger, that, uh, to whom was entrusted Jesus' mother. So, you know, you can see all along, you do find, even among the dedicated and faithful, stumblings where they get replaced. That was Paul's big fear. He wanted to run the race and finish the course. It's interesting, though, by the way, commenting on this a little bit, nowhere in the Scripture is the church admonished to buckle down and get ready for the tribulation. It's interesting. Now, just a historical note, the city of Philadelphia endured till the 14th century. It stood alone against the entire Turkish Empire as a free, self-governing Christian city in the midst of a Turkish land. It was twice besieged by Turkish armies and and, uh, toughed it through, all the way to to the verge of starvation, but they learned to defend themselves uh, right to the end. It was about 1379 to 1390, the end of the 14th century. It finally, the Turks and the Byzantine army got together, and finally uh, it fell. In 1922, Turkey and Greece fought in Philadelphia. Today, there are a few Christians left, but they're, of course, underground because it is an Islamic country today. So it's a little background. But verse 12, Jesus continues, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem and cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. This concept of the pillars, you know, if you study this in concordance, you'll come to 1 Kings 7, where we have the two pillars of the temple. The pillars didn't support anything there. They were for another reason. They had names, Yachin, which means in his council, or he shall establish, and Boaz, in him is strength. And I won't derail our study now to get into all of that. I encourage you to study carefully, not just the tabernacle, but also the temple. I encourage you to avail yourselves of my wife's research, 15 years of research on this topic, in her book called The Way of Agape, which goes in the diagrams in the background in a very exciting and yet very practical way. So I'll leave you with that. Now, for the church in Philadelphia, literally in that day, of course, they had several decades of tremors of earthquakes and so forth. And all of this, this idea, part of the tone of the letter, too, is that there's no need to vacate and fear here that he's in charge. And, of course, from here we can also talk about remaining in the spirit, not the flesh, Galatians 3.3 and so forth. The other thought that underlies this promise is God's own are manifestly marked. He'll deal with that in Revelation 7, 9, 14, and 22. We'll talk more about that as the book unravels. Remember the mitre of the high priest in Israel. On his mitre it said, Holiness unto the Lord. God's own are always marked. The mark of the beast, which gets so much attention in Revelation 13, is Satan's mimicry of the mark that is elsewhere described in the Scripture. We'll deal with that when we get there. Jesus speaks of this new name. He mentioned it in chapter 2, verse 17, you recall. And it's going to come up in chapter 19 again. Jesus has a name written that no man knows but he himself. 
In Revelation 19.12, we'll be talking about that then. In Ezekiel 48, we have his name, Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there, which is the name of the city and so forth. And of course, Yeshua's name is preeminent, we learn in Philippians 2.9 and so forth. The word, my God, appears here four times in this verse. And of course, it immediately reminds us of Psalm 22, verse 1. The first words the Lord proclaimed while hanging on the cross. And those are all departures for your own study as we go. Remember that David, the anointed king of Israel, was exiled for a time from his kingdom. And he took refuge in the cave Adullam. David was refused by his people and in exile. It was interesting that three classes of people that surrounded him. Men in debt, men in danger, and men that were discontented. And he transformed these into the mighty men of David, if you recall. And of course, he ultimately left Adullam to be crowned as king. It's interesting that uh, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the earth's rejected king. But the anointed king will soon return uh, to take his rightful throne, and that's what the rest of this book is going to describe in amazing detail. And, of course, he will give his new city, the new Jerusalem, its new name, and each of its own will be marked with his new name, a badge of triumph. So then the letter concludes, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This catchword. In the first three letters, the promise of the overcomer is outside. The letter is a postscript. The last four, it's included within the letter. We've talked about that before. We'll summarize more of that when we wrap the whole thing up. But again, both Smyrna and Philadelphia had no criticism, and both Smyrna and Philadelphia, in effect, are cities still remaining, the only ones that are. Now, the important thing to remember about all seven churches as we go is each church had a misconception of where it stood. Every church's self-perception was an error. We should take that to heart. In each of these seven letters representing all churches, the picture that Jesus Christ describes and the picture is at variance with their own self-image. Sometimes better, sometimes worse. But in each, in each case, their own perceptions were an error. Now, what I'd like to do tonight is um, continue with the seventh of the seven letters. The, letters to, the letter to Laodicea. South of Philadelphia, not far from Colossae, stood a large and prosperous city uh, called Laodicea on the banks of the, of the river Lycus, a tributary of the Meander River. It had a twin city, Hierapolis, about six miles away, which was known for its hot springs. What most people don't realize is that the water from the hot springs of Hierapolis by open aqueduct was delivered to Laodicea. Now, over six miles of open aqueduct, you can imagine that the hot water wasn't that hot when it got to Laodicea. One of its problems in Laodicea was the water, lukewarm water, is not easy to use. Cold is great, warm you can make, you know. But it's interesting because we're going to find that idiom surface in the letter. Jesus uses it, of course, idiomatically, but that's interesting. See, Laodicea was halfway between Hierapolis and Colossae. Colossae had cold water, Hierapolis hot water, but uh, Laodicea's problem was this lukewarm water, interestingly enough. Um, it was a highly successful commercial and financial center. The remains of a theater, an aqueduct, baths, a gymnasium, and stadium all still survive as remnants of its former glory. Its history is rather strange. It, it was positioned, unlike some of the other cities you talked about, this city was not positioned to be militarily defendable. So they were always vulnerable, therefore developed a, a characteristic of compromise. They had no real choice, in a sense, from a military sense. It was originally found about 2000 B.C. by the Ionians in the relatively small town of Diospolis. But in 19th century B.C., the Hittites added to their empire. A thousand years later, it was, added to, uh, it was captured by the uh, Phrygians and uh, soon afterwards by the Lydians. It was renamed Roas, but about 250 B.C., 
it was taken by the Syrians, and Antiochus II rebuilt the town and named it after his wife, Laodice, or Laodicea. It became part of the kingdom of Pergamus about 190 B.C. and ultimately passed into the Roman Empire. And according to uh, Josephus, there was a large Jewish colony there also, but so much for that. In the church history, it, the church there was probably founded by Epaphras. Colossians 2.1 implies that it was not visited by Paul, although he addressed a letter to it. Colossians 4 makes allusion to this. This letter may very well have been an encyclical letter uh, known as Ephesians, incidentally. Uh, on the other hand, Paul's first letter to Timothy was written by him from Laodicea, just as some background. Some 30 years earlier, Paul had warned Archippus, who was, some people thought was the son of Philemon, uh, to be more diligent in fulfilling his ministry. This is in Colossians 2 and Colossians 4. There is a tradition that Archippus became the bishop of Laodicea, and his lack of diligence may indeed have been laid the groundwork for the problems in this church because we're going to discover it's bad news. It's, it has the most dismal letter of all seven we'll come to. It's, the, it's one of the two letters of which nothing good is said of it. And the economy of Laodicea, it, led, it was a junction of some roads leading from Ephesus and Smyrna and handled a caravan trade all the way to China, the Yellow River in Punjab. And so a lot of wealth flowed through Laodicea. It was a city of merchants and bankers and gold refiners. Cicero did his banking there. Textile manufacturing was also a major industry. They managed somehow to raise a peculiar strain of black sheep, and they were known for a very shiny, very deep black kind of wool. It was very unique, and their cloth and carpets manufactured from it were very well known throughout the world. Also, a famous school of medicine was resident there, known particularly for ophthalmic ointment, a mixture of oil and carillion powder uh, that uh, was described by Aristotle, interestingly enough, uh, for eye uh, problems. So that's a little background. There's a lot more, but that's the relevant background on, on Laodicea. Let's jump into the exposition. In fact, uh, let's, let's read the letter all the way through first and then take it piece by piece. Starting at verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, and I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and uh, sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 14, unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans. Now, the word Laodicean, leo, means people, laity. Nicolaitans have the same root. Laos means people. Laodicea means the rule of the people. Now, if you're talking about a political form of government, that's not bad. If you're talking about a church, something's wrong. Who should be ruling the church? God should be, not the people. And we're going to discover that's the root problem in Laodicea. Again, in each of these letters, the name of the church is even relevant. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So we're going to see here the Laodiceans as the self-satisfied church. 
And Jesus selects of himself, first of all, the Amen. And we'll discover that in Isaiah 65, 16, God is the God of the Amen. What does Amen really mean? True or verily. It's another, in a sense, it's synonym for truth. In a little different sense than the way we used it before. And it's used many times in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 18, and elsewhere. So let's move on. The faithful and true witness. Of course, Isaiah 55, 4, John 18, 37, lots of verses to deal with Jesus, the faithful and true witness. Let's keep moving. There is a phrase used here that's widely misunderstood. It occurs only two places in the New Testament, and that is the beginning of the creation of God. Widely misunderstood, sometimes called the firstborn, firstborn of creation. The concept of the firstborn of creation is one of rank and honor, not that he was created. Don't assume from the English translation of that Greek phrase that it's implying that Jesus was created. That's not what it means at all. He's the beginning of the creation of God. Who, through whom was everything created? John, first three verses. Gospel of John, first three verses. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. Crucified on a cross of wood, yet he made the hill on which it stood, our Lord and Savior. The beginning of the creation of God, the word is arche, or origin, or source. It's used of rank or honor. Now, it's used only here and in the book of Colossians. We're going to discover next time that there's some linguistic connections between these seven letters that Jesus wrote and the the seven churches that Paul wrote to. And we'll talk about that next time. But remember, this, this is one of the phrases that's unique and is a link, if you will. Paul specifically instructed Colossian Laodicea to trade letters. And uh, it was a rebuttal to the Gnostic errors of, the, of their day that began to make their appearance in the Lycus Valley. Now, Laodicea and Colossia were about one mile apart. They were very, like suburbs of one another, in effect. But it's interesting. Let's shift gears here and talk about the prophetic implication of Laodicea. Laodicea represents, in a sense, the, the last of the seven churches. We'd expect it to represent the last of the church period before the church is raptured, right? In some sense. What is the primary heresy of our culture, evolution. That there was no creation. There was no beginning of the creation. They'll talk about the Big Bang without recognizing the whole mathematics implies there was a singularity, a beginning. Somebody made it happen. Whatever you want to, however you want to balance your equations, fine. The problem is it had a beginning. Our, Our universe is finite, not infinite. Big discovery of our age. And yet, despite that, we're inculcated from, through our schools and our media and our, even our scientists, falsely so-called, espouse this bizarre idea that we have this elaborate design that we still don't understand, and yet it happened by accident. Crazy. Peter warned us of this. Turn to 2 Peter 3, verse 4. 2 Peter 3, verse 4. Let's pick up at verse 3. You, you all have seen this passage, I'm sure. Peter says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? The first, first is a skepticism of the second coming of Jesus Christ. How many people are skeptical of that? Even in the church. By the acre, you know. You're a prophecy nut, you know. Our administration's country has labeled you as a dangerous terrorist because of that preoccupation. You haven't checked the list lately. But then Peter continues in verse 4 with a strange remark. He says, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, that's the assertion of the scoffers. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, it's an argument towards uniformitarianism. 
the biological rendering of that is evolution. The astronomical thing is a whole other variation, but the point is, all things continue as they always have. Tonight, take a pair of binoculars and look at the moon. You'll notice it's kind of pockmarked. It's been beat up a little. It's still got bruises. Look at any of your spacecraft passing any of the planets, and they're the same way. This solar system was not uniform. There was catastrophe of all kinds in its formation. So the first assumption is out the window. But the real point is, is that what's interesting here, as you get into uh, uh, 2 Peter 3, 4, there's a linkage between the concept of evolution and the, the skepticism of the second coming of Jesus Christ. How are they connected? Very simply, they both imply that there's a God that intervenes in history. He intervened when he created it in the first place, and he's going to intervene when he takes it over. They're linked together. If you're going to deny one, you end up having to deny the other. That's why evolution is so fundamental doctrine of Satan. One of Satan's most believable lies. How interesting it is that it's that doctrine that characterizes our age. That's, you probably never thought about it, but that's a sign that we're at the end of the ages. Kind of interesting. Now, you've got two choices about these. You can believe in speculation of the scientists, or you can believe in the revelation of the guy that did it. Take a choice. Verse 15, I know thy works, back to Revelation 3, I know thy works, there's a report card coming, Laodiceans, fasten your seatbelt. You notice, normally in this letter, there would be a commendation first, then the, then the criticism. In Laodicea, there is no commendation, it's zip. Unless you understand the structure, you miss that. There's a huge, gaping blank where there ought to be accommodation, if you looked at the way all the letters are organized. But the Lord goes right into it. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold nor hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee. I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is the only letter of the seven which the Lord expresses disgust. Disgust. Lukewarm water is an emetic. Indifference is not tolerable. You know the only certain barrier to truth? There's only one certain barrier to truth. And that's the presumption that you already have it. Now I want to ask you a question as you meld this over. How many of the denominations on the landscape have a true passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ today? Not many. 2 Timothy 3.5 Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. And then you read John 14. In my Father's house, many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you. So, Is the Laodicean church in those idioms? Hardly. Jesus goes on, verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. As you read this, doesn't this describe our country, our churches, our day? Contrast this exclamation with that of Smyrna. They thought they were poor. He says, no, you're rich. Laodicea is the inverse of that. You think you're rich. You got zilch, guys. This is, in effect, the ultimate rebuttal to the contentment and spiritual complacency that comes from uh, self-sufficiency.
our view of that. This church, Laodicea, is worse off than any of the others. We were pretty hard on some of the others. We talked about Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis. Tough stuff. All of them had a call to repentance. This one doesn't. He said, I'm going to throw up, you guys. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold. Now, incidentally, these guys in Laodicea were businessmen. Merchants, bankers, you know. He speaks to them in their terms. They'll relate to this. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment, not the black stuff you're famous for, the white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thy eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Is he talking about the ointment they're famous for? No, of course not. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, that they may really see. The bridegroom is offering his covering, white raiment, rather than the glossy raven-colored wool that they were famous for. And, of course, this refiner's fire analogy or idiom that he uses is familiar. Psalm 19, the refiner's fire, we sing that a lot. And 1 Corinthians 3, remember, gold, silver, wood, hay, stubble, the, the idiom in 1 Corinthians 3. Again, it's the fire, the refining fire that's the, the idiom that's used. Verse 19, he continues, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. By the way, are you being rebuked and chastened? How many have been rebuked and chastened here? Anyway, the Lord loves you. How do I know? Because you're being rebuked and chastened. He doesn't bother the others. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Zealous, by the way, means hot, not lukewarm. Are you zealous or hot enough to repent? That's the question he's asking us. There's an inscription on a cathedral in Lübeck, Germany, that I thought you might enjoy. Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us, it says. Ye call me master and obey me not. Ye call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. <laughs> Sounds German, doesn't it? (laughs) Then we get to verse 20. Now this verse, used by itself, is a marvelous verse. You've heard it a thousand times. The Lord Jesus is saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. And I can't imagine the number of evangelists that have used that as a call to come down the sawdust trail and give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Use that way. It's valid. No problem. Don't misunderstand me. It's an incredible verse. It stands on its own, and as it stands on its own, boy, it says it all. If any man will hear my voice, I stand at the door. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. There's an English artist by the name of Holman Hunt who painted Christ standing at the door. And a critic says, you've screwed up. There's no handle on the door. Hunt replied, the door is a picture of the human heart. The only handle is on the inside. Interesting. And Jesus, of course, will not force his entry. 
And I love this business. He says, uh, I will open the door and come into him. And guess what? And sup with him. And I love this. Do you realize that Jesus never appears after his resurrection without eating? He's my kind of guy, you know. (laughs) But now, we're trying to study this more comprehensively. As we stand back and you put this verse where it appears... It is a scathing indictment of the church of Laodicea. In every other letter, there is a corporate call. If you as a corporate body will repent, then I will, whatever. If you don't repent, I'll cast you into the tribulation, he tells Thyatira. There's always a corporate call. There is no corporate call here. This is a call to the individual in lieu thereof. Do you realize the difference? Do you realize by silence what that says about the Laodicean church. And furthermore, where is Jesus with respect to the Laodicean church? He's outside, knocking to get in. Heavy stuff when you look at it that way. There's no corporate delivery promised here. The appeal is to the individual. It's interesting, in the romance of the book of Ruth, Boaz, kinsman redeemer model, if you will, Ruth is at his feet. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, it was her move. Ruth, of course, being the Gentile bride. Boaz being the kinsman redeemer. Boy, that speaks volumes. Now, there's a lot of us here that probably have a justification to get angry. Has the church failed to tell you that you were a sinner? Has the church failed to deal with you as a lost individual? Has the church failed to offer you salvation in Jesus Christ alone? Has the church failed to proclaim the horrible consequences of sin, the certainty of hell, and the fact that Jesus alone can save? I suggest that we need to bring not the message of culture, but the message of rebirth. And the church, collectively speaking, has failed to do that. Get to the verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. Whose thrones are we talking about? Now, the ruling over, over Israel is mentioned in Luke 22.30. The ruling over the angels, 1 Corinthians 6.3, and the reign of 2 Timothy 2.12. For those of you who want to track that down, we'll be talking more about that as we go. But the other thing that's interesting is this issue of the overcomer. The overcomer. We had seven promises to the overcomer. And the question you might properly ask, who's the overcomer? 1 John 5.4, key verse. 1 John 5.4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And then the next verse clears it up even further. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? You don't overcome by keeping laws. You don't overcome by doing works. God wants a garden, not a factory. The fruit grow naturally, not by striving and effort. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus has done it all. We need to just trust him and his completed work. John 16, 33, Hebrews 1, 3, lots of verses. I'll block that up, but let's wrap it up. So, uh, uh, verse 22, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That final catchword on each of the seven letters. Churches, plural. There is some of all churches in every one of our churches. Each of the letters applies to each of us. Many of us 
have or still do regard ourselves as comfortable, sufficient, satisfied. Deadly, deadly position to be in. Getting back to the prophetic scenario, the fourth level of meaning, does Laodicea characterize our age? If so, it's interesting, there is no eighth letter. We're coming to the end of it. You're going to discover that from verse 21, to with one small exception at the very end of the book, the churches are no longer mentioned in the book of Revelation. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to, it starts off with metatauta, hereafter these things. The trigger word from first, first, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And we're going to discover we're going to be at the throne of God and all kinds of dramatic, exciting things start to take place. But our vantage point will be in heaven and watching the action from there, from chapter 4, verse 1 on. Very interesting time coming on. He that hath an ear, it occurs seven times in these seven letters. It also occurs in the Gospels how many times? Good guess, seven times, exactly. Okay. We've just reviewed tonight two churches. One will be raptured. One will go into the tribulation. And one of the questions are, is, where are you? And it's got nothing to do with the nameplate on the building you happen to worship. It's got nothing to do with the formalisms and hymns and structure that we variously are comfortable with. It has to do with a personal relationship with the one that has the key of David, who opens and shuts and no man and so forth. Okay. Now, what we're going to do next time as our eighth study in this first collection of eight, we're going to do a summary of what we've learned in these last seven letters to seven churches, but we're going to do it from a very surprising viewpoint. What I'd like you to do before we take the next lesson is to read at your leisure between now and our next meeting, Matthew 13. Read it carefully because it's full of surprises. If you read it carefully, it should confuse you. If it seems straightforward and you understand it, you probably haven't read it carefully enough. And I'll leave it at that for next time. Let's also notice in these lessons that we've had that in each church... The perception, the self-perception of the church was at substantial variance with the way the Lord saw the church. And that should keep us all very humble. You can count on the view that the view you have of your church is probably at variance with the way the Lord sees it. And these seven letters will illuminate that for you. And more important, in a sense, is our personal, our personal spiritual condition ourselves. Because all of us have elements of the Ephesus. We've all been diligent and yet lost our first love. All of us will probably, from time to time, be experiencing the persecutions of Smyrna. All of us have married the world like Pergamos in one way or another. And all of us have some idolatry, as Thyatira did. All of us are guilty of living in name, but are really dead. Hopefully, most of us can claim the joy of his appearing and the promise that was given to Philadelphia. And let's hope that no one in this fellowship falls into the complacency of Laodicea and, and shares that grim destiny. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer.
Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come before your throne asking you, Father, to help us see ourselves as you see us. And Father, we would ask that in this day of denial that you would help us keep your word and not deny your name. Help us, Father, to perceive our real needs and not be deceived by any apparent self-sufficiency. Help us, Father, as we reread your letters to these seven representative churches. Illuminate each of these letters to each of us personally. And help us, Father, to rid ourselves of our former grave clothes and the empty formalisms that encumber our personal relationship with you. And we would ask you, Father, to reignite through your Holy Spirit your love within us and keep our eyes fixed on your soon appearing. And let your, the eminency of your return influence every priority in our lives. For we come before you, Father, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.